Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. Here we are, we're into the book of Acts. We've been going through it and trying to understand better how the church grew and uh, what we can learn from it. Specifically, you'll notice the book of Acts, almost everything happens in urban centers. The apostles never go to the countryside to preach. And the reason is very simple. The reason we should still spend as much time in cities as possible and not abandon them is because, believe it or not, cities is where things change faster than in the country. I think I may have mentioned to you before, the word pagan means country dweller, because the last people to accept the gospel were rural folks. And now, aren't you seeing it? Where's the bastion of conservatism? Rural centers. And if you want to change the world, you go to a city. Jesus' brothers knew that. They were trying to rush him there, right? Go to the city, go to the city. But as a result, because there's so much urban ministry happening in the book of Acts, it's good and common and right that we look at it and say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian in our modern world. And so we're into a very long passage here. So at the end of chapter 6, Stephen is arrested, and then he gives a very lengthy speech before being martyred. And so we're not going to read the entire speech, though I will cover and talk about the whole thing, but we're going to read chunks of this passage. So it'll be up on the screens. I'm going to be reading from uh, chapter 6, verse 8, till the first verse of chapter 7, and then chapter 7, 51 to 60. So Just follow us up on screens, and here we go. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Now to verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So this is the culmination of a lot of things happening in the book of Acts. This is now the third run-in with the authorities the church has had, and it's gotten progressively worse. The first time was a warning, an arrest and a warning. second time was an arrest and a beating. Now there is an arrest and then murder. It's not even an execution because the Jews weren't permitted to execute anybody by Roman law. So this is a murder. It's a mob. It's a lynching, basically. And so things have ramped up. And here's what's going on here very simply. Stephen, who has just newly been uh, ordained or, or called to the task of serving the widows, the, the Greek widows, as we saw last week, um, he's active in his local synagogue, it looks like as well. Because we know he's probably a Greek, and the synagogue of the freedmen would have been a synagogue in Jerusalem that was devoted, uh, made up of freed slaves and the descendants of freed slaves. So it's very likely or at least possible that the reason he stirs up trouble here is because he is himself a, a, a foreigner or a Greek Jew who is part of this community. And when he starts talking about his Christianity, it causes debates. And when he can't, they can't beat him in a debate, they, they drum up false witnesses and false accusations against him. And then he comes and when, when he's asked to defend himself, he does something very curious. He gives you 60 verses almost of history. And it can seem very dry, first of all, if you're reading it, if you're, if you're not paying attention to it and you don't know what you're reading, it seems dry. And it can also seem irrelevant, like what's he doing? In fact, you wouldn't be alone if you ever thought that. Um, a notable skeptic and atheist, George Bernard Shaw, who the Shaw Festival is named after, had this to say about Stephen. Stephen is a quite intolerable young speaker and a tactless and conceited bore who delivered an oration to the council in which he inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of Israel, which, with which they were presumably as well acquainted as he. So in other words, George Bernard Shaw says, gosh, what a waste of space this, this is. Why is he bothering? Why is he trying to lecture these scholars on the history of Israel? They know it. Stephen? Now, first, I don't take much advice from a man like George Bernard Shaw, but I'll say this. If, if anybody was to go to George Bernard Shaw and say, I think your work is made by a conceited, irrelevant bore, and I'm not going to bother with it. Would he think, oh, that's enough, that's fine? Or would he want to defend himself and say, maybe you should try to read it carefully before you dismiss it as irrelevant? And so that's what we're going to try to do. Because when you look at this passage, it is far from irrelevant. It can sound that way when you're not aware of what Stephen is trying to do, but it's actually a quite clever approach here. Because what he does, you do need to ask the question, if you're put on trial for your life and asked to defend yourself, why do you tell a story? And the story specifically, what he does, he takes four different ages or times in Israel's history. The ages of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then David and Solomon combined. And he, through telling the story of these four different men in these ages, he is trying to show them something. And what he is trying to show them is something that is maybe a bit more profound than I think even Bernard Shaw wanted to give credit for. And so here's what's going on. Let me begin with Plato. I always start with philosophers, it feels like. But Plato has this, if anybody's gone to philosophy or maybe not, you've heard this. He had this thing called the allegory of the cave. It's very famous. And what Plato said was all humanity are like people who have been living forever in a cave. And the only thing you've ever seen is shadows cast on the wall in front of you by a fire behind you. It's casting shadows. You have no idea that the real world of light and freshness and goodness and substantial things is up there above the cave. 
And we're all just fools looking at shadows. What we need is education and reason, says Plato, to drag us out of our shadow caves, out of the shadow lands, and drag us up into the light so we can see truth. Now, C.S. Lewis would later take this idea, and many people since, and say, he's got part of the idea here. We are all people who mistake shadows for reality. And what we need is not better education, because education could just teach you more about the shadows. What you need, says Lewis, is you need God to come and to call it what you will. Lewis would say he was dragged. He said he was the most reluctant convert in all of England. And so, but dragged, wooed, whatever you want, use whatever language you want. But something that will call to you from a whisper to you from, from outside of the shadow and lure you out of the cave and into this other world, which is the real world. And the reason we bring this up is this. What Stephen is doing in this long, seemingly boring speech is he is trying to show them that they are living in the shadowlands. That God has done something. That something has occurred that has revealed that they are making the shadows reality and neglecting the actual reality. There's the shadows of things. And so, this is what we're going to see here. When Stephen says the world has confused it, that the Jews, up until that point, who were resisting the gospel and everyone today, have looked and they're confusing. They're making the shadows to be real. And the gospel's job is to tell you, no, no, you're mistaken. The shadows are shadows. And there is a reality behind it. Something is casting the shadows, as it were. And so that's what we're going to look at. This passage shows us, at first it exposes the shadows, and then it reveals the truth, the reality. And so we're going to see what, is, what the gospel does and what Stephen is saying is that there is a real home, a real hope, and a real peace counter to the shadows of all those things. Okay, So, he has been accused. First one is real home. Stephen is accused of very two, two very simple things. Okay? Simple but very severe things. One, you have this man never ceases, which may be extreme, but he never ceases to speak against the temple and the law. So, he is accused of blasphemy and terrorism, basically. And I'll explain those as we go. But the first one is about the temple. They said, listen, this man, and they mistook him, right? Because Jesus did say, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And clearly, Stephen was echoing this in his teaching. And the Jews, and the leaders of the time, were saying, gosh, this guy is, two things. One, it's terrorism. He's threatening to destroy the temple. It's terrorism. It's a threat. But it's not just a threat physically, it's all, and national security-wise. It's also a threat theologically, because it's far more than just an issue of a building. This is theology. He's, address, he's trying to slander something that is eternal, that is God, that is forever. And it runs afoul of their theology, so they have problems. And to understand what the Jews thought about the temple, I mean, it could be a very long sermon or lecture. So we're not going to do that. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to, to, to today, present day, to help you understand. Because they still Jews still think the same things that were problematic then for Christians. And if you ever go to Israel, if you've been there, you know there's a wall called the Wailing Wall. And the Wailing Wall is what seems to be the last remnants of a wall from the temple, from the second temple, not from Solomon's, but from the second temple. So we're looking at 2,000 plus years old. And this wall of the temple remains, and it's called the Wailing Wall because people have gone up for centuries to, to pray before it, etc., and they, they weep before it. You even see heads of state go in and put a prayer on paper and stick it into a crease in the wall. Now, 
When you go to the Wailing Wall, there's a sign. And if you read the sign that tells you what the Wailing Wall is, it'll tell you exactly the problem Stephen had at the time. Here's what the, wall, the sign says. Jewish tradition teaches that the Temple Mount is the focal point of creation. In the center of the mountain lies the foundation stone of the world. Here, Adam came into being. Here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob served God. The first and second temples were built on this mountain. The Ark of the Covenant was set upon the foundation stone itself. Jerusalem was chosen by God as a dwelling place of the Shekinah. David longed to build the temple, and Solomon, his son, built the first temple here about 3,000 years ago. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The second temple was rebuilt on its ruins 70 years later. It was raised by the Roman legions over 1,900 years ago. The present western wall before you is a remnant of, this, of the western temple mount retaining walls. Jews have prayed in its shadow for hundreds of years, an expression of their faith in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, we won't get into the, the great debate amongst Jews today about whether the temple should or should not be rebuilt. It doesn't really matter. But what you notice with this inscription, what this sign says, the Jews did and continue to believe that the temple mount, where the temple was built on, and the temple itself, by extension, is the focal point of creation, the foundation stone of the world. Jews have prayed in its shadow. Notice something. The whole thing's about shadows today. What casts, see, shadows cannot cast shadows. I actually Googled it to make sure I wasn't crazy. Apparently, you cannot cast a shadow from a shadow. The only thing that casts shadows are real, substantial things. And Israel believes, listen, this isn't just a building. This is a building that was built on a place, blessed of God, where he said he would dwell. And so if you threaten this place, you're threatening more than just stones. You're threatening God. You're threatening our identity. You're threatening everything, because this is eternally the focal point of creation. And they have prayed in the shadow for all these years because they're worshiping the wrong thing. Now, when Stephen then comes and starts speaking the way he does, he says essentially, not essentially, he literally says, the temple is not eternal, not the way they think. And the temple itself is a shadow. It points to something. The temple itself is a transitional thing. So let's take those two things he does first. First, he says it's not eternal. So in his speech... He goes into great detail. If you watch when he speaks about Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David and Solomon, he says, first, listen, God was with Abraham. No temple required. He was there. God is then with Joseph in prison, in slavery, and as a prime minister of Egypt. He's there for the whole time. He is with Moses, and the presence of God makes the ground holy. The ground is not holy in and of itself. So if the temple is holy, it's not because the temple is holy. It's only insofar as God is present there. And he continually says, God is, God's not chained to the temple, the way you think. So he's very clear, but, and he goes on. Then, in fact, he even says, God was with Moses before Pharaoh, and then he told Solomon directly, and Solomon said during the dedication, that God does not dwell in houses. So first he's saying, it's not eternal, because it didn't always exist, not physically. Make that point. And then what he's doing is he's showing them that the temple was transitional. It was always transitional. Christians who want the temple rebuilt, I'm, I'm not sure what you're thinking. The temple was never intended to be what we've made it to be. And, he, and scripture is very clear. So we start in the Garden of Eden. God is walking with humanity in essentially a cosmic temple that allows him and humanity to live without sin well together. There's the fall. And then after the fall comes a temple. To show, and it's God's showing, well, tabernacle and temple. 
And God is saying through this temple, listen, I want to be with you. And this temple is transitional. And we know it's transitional because he says things throughout the prophets that say things like, I'm going to dwell with you forever. Even while you're in exile, I'll be there forever. I'll dwell in your midst, among you. And he drops these things from Ezekiel and Zephaniah. And then it builds, because then eventually we see the incarnation happen. And when the incarnation happens, John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So we're seeing that the, ta- that the glory of God, God himself, has moved now. Something is happening where there's a migration from the temple into flesh, into a man, into Jesus. And then Jesus himself, to avert one chapter after that in John, chapter 2, says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. So in other words, he's saying his body is now the temple, the true temple, right? So he's, moved, he's changing, he's showing the purpose of the temple and where, how things are moving. Then he goes on again in John and says in chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. See what he's doing? The temple is moving. The temple is present wherever God is present. And the big physical temple is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But God's purpose in the temple was to show you the sort of thing he was going to do incredibly in Christ and then into you. And this is why Paul, who is watching this whole thing, Paul's watching this whole speech, and we know it impacted Paul, because later in the book of Acts, he's going to say he was there and saw Stephen die. We know his theology looks like he picked up on Stephen. Listen, who told Luke that Stephen said all these words? Somebody must have been a witness to it. Paul. Paul seemed to remember it pretty well. And later in Corinthians, what does Paul say very clearly? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have come, who, sorry, who you have from God? And so you see the temple is not the building. The temple is where God dwells. And he has dwelled in man, and now he dwells in the heart of believers. And then, not just individually. Our, individu- our culture today would like to say, you alone. But look at what Ephesians says. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, plural, are also being built together into, the dwe- into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so do you see what Stephen is doing? And what Christianity does and why it offends the Jews so much and did and continues to is because it's saying the thing you think is reality is a shadow. It's a good thing, but it's pointing to something greater. And a shadow's purpose is to get you there. If you're in a room and a shadow comes in, do you stare at the shadow? No, you always look and say, who's casting the shadow? And Stephen and Jesus are saying, look to the one who casts the shadow. And we see this transition all through Scripture of what the temple was meant to be. Now, Christianity says that God made his dwelling place in us to allow us to obey and to become like him. And so, this is the great part they can't understand yet, and they're going to kill Stephen for. He is not destroying the temple. He's fulfilling the temple. That's what Christ did. In fact, Christ says the same thing about the law, as you're going to see in a minute, in the Sermon on the Mount. Not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so, these things are shadows. The Jews at this point... And today, as much as we can love them and care for them, they remain in the cave. The gospel hasn't yet dragged them out to see the light beyond it and what is casting the shadows. And so, this is actually a great... Listen, this home. Our home, you and I were made to be in Christ. That is our home. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we will have fewer issues with our modern identity crisis. 
What am I? Who am I? Where do I belong? Listen, this is where you belong. Stop looking for shadows. Stop looking for substantial things, for homes in the shadows. And this is the first thing that Paul, that Stephen does. And it gets him, that's a weird defense, but that's how he defends himself. The second accusation is the law. And this shows the real hope. Now, the law. How do we understand the law? The Jews, the law in Israel at the time meant this. God gave it, and that's by the way by which we, we fill up and, and, and um, cross the gap of holiness. We are here, God is there, and we have to do. This is the way it was seen. We have to do, a certain, do these things to fill up the gap. Almost like every, every good deed, every time we obey the law, we're putting a shovel in the hole that hopefully we can walk across. This was, we know this is the way many of them thought. They have to do the law. So when Christianity comes and says, the law isn't like that, the relationship to the law is different. It's not even needed in some ways. And that, again, sounds like an assault. It's an assault on God. It's an assault on His mercy because the law is good. And it's a mercy, an act of mercy that God says, hey, there's a way we can still relate. And it's through the law. And so the Jews are like, man, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're assaulting God, our traditions, our identity, everything. And so it can be very offensive. And it is offensive to them. But what Stephen is doing again is showing the law was a shadow, that it was temporary, that it has a purpose. And in his speech, he does this because he has all this history, and the law doesn't even show up until verses 42-43. So what he's saying is, listen, God related to humanity without the law, and he will continue to. But the law is important. The law is important. But its service, its, its, its um, purpose has been fulfilled in Christ. And it's highly offensive, but look at the way he does it. He does it in the, probably the most offensive possible way, so he doesn't really do himself any favors. When, in verse 51, when he calls them a stiff-necked, uncircumcised people who have received the law but never do it, but never obey it. First, that's not the way to win admirers. But, but what is interesting here is the language. He chooses to intentionally use the same words that Moses used against Israel in the wilderness. You stiff-necked people. And Abraham later, you uncircumcised people. Meaning, gosh, you just never get it. You refuse to bend to God. You refuse to obey Him. You refuse, you can't even hear Him. You're missing the point altogether. So it's quite offensive. So I can appreciate that. But one thing he does that is brilliant is the word he uses, the, the title he gives Jesus is strange. It says, you have murdered the righteous one and you don't obey the law. Why does he put that? That's all together. In fact, that's literally the last... Verses he says, first he starts, you stiff-necked people, verse 51, uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Then verse 52, 53. Um, and they killed those, he's talking about your prophets, their, their, their ancestors. You killed those uh, who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law and uh, delivered by the angels but did not keep it. Now why does he call Jesus the righteous one? Because he's doing it at the same time he's talking about the law. And to be righteous is to be in right standing with God. That's what righteous means. Anytime somebody uses it, I know we have modern connotations or anything we want. Righteous means to be right with God. And the law, what he is saying is, if you think the law is going to make you righteous, you have a problem because you can't even keep the law. You never have. In fact, you've killed the ones who tell you to keep it. And ironically, you have killed the only righteous one, the one who fulfilled the law for you. So he's really undermining their assumptions about the law here. And it's, it's, it's clear 
That's what he's doing here. Um, and so what he's saying again is the law is not bad, but it has been fulfilled. It is transitional. And if you were here years, years ago, we did talk about what parts of the law do we still obey? What parts don't we obey? And there are parts we do. The Ten Commandments are eternal. Well, that's immoral laws forever. But you don't need to slaughter animals anymore. You don't have to worry about cutting your hair or casting menstruating women out of the sanctuary. We don't do that anymore. And it's not because we're just picking and choosing. Because of what the Bible tells us about our relationship to the law. So when Stephen comes and says, you don't need to do certain things because of who Christ is, boy, that gets him very angry at him. But what he is doing is exactly, again, where Paul picks up. Um, in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so he's saying, Paul's doing exactly, and you have to think that he was haunted by what he saw. Because Paul knew it. He knew what he saw. He was impacted by it. He memorized his speech well enough to give it to Luke. And the theology of Paul's letters seems to be all built on this foundation of Stephen. Scholars will debate it, but that's a, there's some reason to think it. And so what Paul's saying is the law was a pedagogos, which is a pedagogue, a teacher. Its job was to come and instruct you to something. So it had a purpose, like all teachers do. At some point, you're beyond the teaching and you now start living. And he's saying the law had its purpose. And the purpose of the law was to show you you cannot keep the law. The purpose of the law was to be as hard as nails, that you try and you try and you try to fill up the gap, to be righteous. But when you fail and you continually break yourself on the law time and time again, it was to show you you needed mercy. You needed a Savior. You needed a righteous one. So what Stephen is saying is that time is now gone. Praise God. What you need to realize is you cannot fulfill the law that time has passed, and now you have to find someone who has fulfilled it for you. And this is exactly what he's saying here, and this is such good news for us. Because the law is not a means, it never was intended to be a means by which you save yourself. It was always meant to show you you couldn't. In fact, you know who gets this really right? The Reformation and the Puritans. The Puritans and the Reformers came up with wonderful language about this. And they said, what God does is God gives you the law to drive you to Christ. And finding him, you're driven back to the law for sanctification. And what, they, what that means is this. God loves you so much. He wants you to see you can't save yourself and you need him. So he drives you to the law, which should drive you to the cross. Mercy. I can't do it. I need a savior. But then once you're saved by grace, Christ turns you back to the law and says, now go and keep it and see what it means to be godly. Now you can obey it, not be out of fear, and not, and not being worried that you're going to fail, but instead you go and you say, I want to obey it because I've been saved. And so the law has a purpose. It does. But it's been fulfilled, at least the way they've been using it. And they, do, they simply don't like it. They don't like it. And so after hearing these two, this defense, they're angry. The Jews don't like it. They don't want to hear that the temple, the way they see things, is wrong. And so what do they do? They want to kill him. They want to kill him. And this vision that, that Stephen sees, the vision that Stephen sees is so incredible that what, think about this, whatever he sees when he looks up to heaven is enough to not only allow him to die in peace, right, but also enough to eventually haunt Saul 
the man who's there approving of it, is haunted by this scene. And every Christian since has understood, everyone who has died for the faith and, been, and, and walked faithfully in the faith, understands something of what, what Stephen sees. Because the vision is so strong that it doesn't just allow the church in persecution to survive persecution, but to grow and thrive through persecution. So whatever this vision is, we should take note of it. Because it's not what you think. It's much more wonderful and more simple than you think. So, what does he see? He's standing. He's, he's sitting there, or standing there. He's been dragged out of the city and he's being stoned. As he does, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, or of God. Now, seems pretty simple. You've read it a thousand times, but do you know what's happening? In the ancient world, it was common that legal cases would be heard in the throne room. Remember Solomon and the, the two women and the baby? They come before him and he's in the throne room and he hears the case and he gives a, an answer for, for it. Um, there's other ones. Um, oh, Paul. Paul's going to be standing before uh, Caesar. We go and when you hear a case in the ancient world, the king st- sits in judgment. Sits in judgment. A king that is hearing legal cases sits and it dispenses justice. The only one who stands in the court when there is a court happening in the throne room, is the advocate. And so, understand what's happening. It's so beautiful. Here is Stephen being condemned by the earthly court, and he looks up and sees he is being justified by Christ. That all the while, this shadow, it's real. Listen, this is real. I'm not saying this, is, I'm not, this isn't some weird Eastern mysticism nonsense I'm talking. This is real. Where this isn't life is but a dream. It's not that. It's real. But, the condemnation he is suffering, he realizes, is a shadow. Because this is not the court that matters. It's that one. And when he looks up and he needs something to sustain him through the stoning, what does he see? That Christ, the righteous one who died on his behalf, stands at, the right, at God's side saying, I know they're condemning him, and yes, he's a sinner, but I paid for him. And so you have this king who you know This is why you can stand in punishment. This is why you can stand when the world mocks you. This is why you come to church and you don't mind singing and being embarrassed when you have a terrible voice. Because you know this is the shadow. It's important, but it's a shadow. That all the condemnation here can do nothing because he intercedes ever and ever and ever on your behalf. That every time something condemns you here and says, look at what they've done, they can't be saved, Christ somehow, I I can't even fathom the, the mercy, stands up and looks at his father and says, yes, they deserve it, but you've already received payment. I took care of that. They're not condemned. Every single time. And so when Stephen sees this, it's understandable why he is standing and why he can die the way he dies. Now, oh my goodness, I don't even know where I am here. I'm mixing up my papers everywhere. So, and this, again, doesn't mean you won't suffer. I want to make sure I say this. If you're a Christian, you will suffer in life. Not just persecution, potentially, but you'll suffer. And this is why we all the more see how Paul, again, in Romans 8.18, says rightly, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Because he knows there's an advocate on his behalf. And so if you're a skeptic, listen, the reason he could stand and look like an angel while he's being condemned. The reason he can take the beating and literally die forgiving his enemies. Yes, Luke is comparing his death to Jesus. That's there, of course. But the reason he can is because he knows nothing here can hurt him 
What, and I've said it so many times, what, is, what, what, what does it matter if I have the good opinion of an ant when I have a good opinion of a king? And so he's not dissuaded by that. So if you're a skeptic, listen, you know you've been made for eternity. I just did a funeral this week for skeptics, all of them. And I made it clear. I said, isn't it funny how you're all atheists? And yet the eulogy itself said, Dad, I'm going to see you one day. Really? How do you know that? Why is it that we all think that? Listen, we all have a sense that we've been made for eternity. We all do. And yet we're looking for eternal significance in the shadows. And the gospel is trying to drag us out and show you what is real from the shadows. Except, stop looking for home and peace and hope in the shadowlands. Find it in Christ. And if you're a Christian, greatest words. I mean, you know who I often quote is a guy who I don't think we ever sing because his songs are probably not great melodies. But as an old Englishman named William Cowper, a song called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Here's the, some words. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessing on your, blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have bitter taste, but, the sweet, but sweet will be the flower. That is what we have. Yes, life will be hard. But we live not in the shadows. It's a constant effort to distinguish shadows from the real. The gospel is real. Your salvation is real if you're a Christian. Your hope is real. The lies of the world are real, but they're shadows. They don't tell the truth. The final word on you is not the kind of parent you were, is not the kind of child you were, a student you were, the kind of drug addict you were. Whatever your past is, the reality of you is what your advocate says you are. And when God looks at you, he sees Christ and he says, saved, justified. That is the reality, not the shadow. It's the greatest. It's the gospel. Let's pray.